Hello, this is Heat Rocks, and I'm Oliver Wong, flying solo today. Morgan Rhodes will be back next week. Every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about a heat rock that is hot lava put to record. And today, we will be globetrotting back to 2007 to talk about Kala, the sophomore album by M.I.A. In 2005, Maya Arul Pergasm, better known as M.I.A., lit a fuse with her debut album, Avalar, that ignited into a glorious conflagration two years later with her follow-up, Kala. While prominent film and trailer placements helped turn the song Paper Planes into the album's primary hit, all of Kala crackled with frenetic kinetic energy drawn from the album's embrace of various underground dance cultures from around the global south. Anchoring it all was the piercing brogue of M.I.A.'s voice, whose use of repetitive chants, yelps, and hollers, in addition to her lyrical and political bravado, was a sonic weapon all its own. I reviewed Kala for NPR back then when it dropped and wrote this at the time, quote, at a time when globalization is both dissolving and reinforcing national identities, MIA's music speaks from a blurry borderland through a lingua franca of agitated, propulsive pop. The energy should be familiar to restless youth almost anywhere, unquote. I can only hope my observations have held up as well as this album has. MIA, third world democracy. Yeah, I got more records in the KGB. So, uh, no funny business. You already are. Kala was the album pick of our guest today, journalist and critic Lorraine Ali. Her career as an arts and entertainment writer spans two decades, much of that having been spent at the LA Times, where she currently writes about television and politics, though I first started reading her byline when she was still penning music criticism for the likes of The Times, The LA Weekly, Rolling Stone, and Newsweek, amongst many other outlets. She's also been one of the leading journalists to cover the Muslim-American community, but I didn't realize until this week that she used to contribute a car column to UHF Magazine back in the day. Truly a modern Renaissance writer, Lorraine Ali, welcome to Heat Rocks. Thank you. How did you find that car column? <laughs> I think it was probably on Wikipedia, but you know, I try to do my homework. So <laughs> I love that you wrote a column. We're just going to start completely off, <laughs> off topic here. Sure. How did you end up writing a car column? The car column was sort of like my love letter to L.A. I felt like we needed something that, you know, I'm a native Angelino, and yeah. I felt like we needed something that got at L.A. culture by something that was extremely, you know, rooted in the city. And I was like, sure. what better than a car column? And my father had been in the car business, whether it was like rental cars, um, you know, an entrepreneur in the car business, kind of like rental cars, selling used cars, all of that stuff. So I had a new car probably like every six months, no, wow. a new old car. Got it. And all my, you know, all my friends were like, you like really need to write about this. I'm like a car column. Why not? That's awesome. Well, taking it to MIA and Kala, let's start with the artist. How did MIA first land on your radar? Well, I was a music critic at the time and I think I was with Newsweek and Arular came out and I remember hearing 
I think it was Galang, mm-hmm. uh, and she had these chants in there, and I think it was the yeah, yeah, hey. And I thought, what is this? Yeah. This is amazing. And I just wanted to know more about the artist behind it. I think much like you, I had a very similar reaction to first starting to hear MIA and, and RLR was, was certainly, it made a big enough splash, even though Kala was, I think, the bigger album and a lot of that is in terms of the success of Paper Planes, but it's not like RLR was some, you know, you know, obscure first album that nobody had heard of. Like MIA really helped uh, blow up on that. And I didn't listen to a lot of electronic dance music. I was primarily a hip hop guy, especially at the time. So I, I can't say whether or not what MIA a was doing was wholly unprecedented. I can say that as someone who listened to mainstream pop music, to your point, I didn't really think there was anyone else that was doing stuff like this, especially drawing in this very syncretic way from all of these different club cultures from around the world. And I think, especially between these first two albums, it really felt like it was almost like an ethnographic guide uh, for dummies to all of the underground <laughs> music that was popping off. Um, in different places, uh, you know, around the world, especially as I was saying in the, in the intro around the global south. And I'm wondering, was that the same impression you came away with at the time? It was. And I had listened to um, a lot of electronica and then EDM or whatever you wanted to call it at the, whatever point it sure, was at. Sure. And there wasn't anything out there that I had tripped upon that was like that. And to your point, I always was thinking here we have this opportunity to technologically, but also because it's just so much easier to access music now to pull all these things together. And nobody was doing it. It's like, where is that? And when I heard bits off, I was like, that's it. Like, it's almost like I, I brought it into being by thinking about it. It's like, here it is. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. The world is a really big place. And it just felt like music was getting smaller and smaller and smaller here in the U.S., and which is one of the reasons I kind of started getting out of music criticism. Mm. This was one of the bright lights where, wow, this is opening it up the other way. And I just didn't hear a lot of people doing it. And the fact that it was a woman, I was like, thank you. This is how we do next. Side two, the boys say friends that we as our prime. 2020, Thunderbird 1209. Took a pill, good time all the time. This is how we do next. Side two, the boys say friends that we as our prime. 2020, Thunderbird 1209. Took a pill, good time all the time. When we were discussing what album you wanted to talk about, um, you went back and forth between RLR and then Kala, and you ultimately decided on Kala. So I'm wondering why Kala? What, what makes that particular sophomore album a heat rock for you? I think Kala was just a better album. I think she had really gotten into her own sort of groove, so to speak, with Kala. And, you know, she had been with Diplo before with Arular, and it was interesting, but people had given him a ton of credit for that. We can get into that later. Oh, we were definitely going to get into that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Imagine that. They're giving the white guy all the credit. That's crazy. (laughs) Uh, But I felt like Kala, when... That came out, it was Arula realized in a much in much more depth. Yeah. But it also kind of also went wider. It was weirder, but it was also bigger. I mean, it was amazing kind of how she was able to go much more specific and in doing that, make it much wider. It was also more focused just in terms of being topical. Mm-hmm. I felt like it really hit on things that were happening at the time in a way that Arular was much more um, scattered and kind of much more about like a dance club experience. Right. 
Kala seemed to be a mix of that, but also, you know, kind of a, a topical roadmap of what was happening around the world. Mm. This, I don't know if this is a, the best analogy, but it, it makes me think of the relationship between public enemies, uh, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back, which was their sophomore album compared to their first one, which is that you can absolutely see what they were going for um, with that first PE album. But It Takes a Nation is where it deepens, and they really develop, I think, in a sense, an identity for themselves as a group. And I feel like there's something similar happening in that that transition from Aulor to Kala as well is that MIA, you can really hear her coming into her own. And I think part of what you're bringing up is the role that she plays as a co-producer on this album, I think makes a, a really significant difference here. And for those unfamiliar with the backstory here, originally Timbaland, right? It was supposed mm-hmm. to have produced much of that second album, but the reason why that didn't happen, well, one of them at least is that MIA was denied a visa coming into the U.S. And that was obviously going to make a challenge to her working with Timbaland, who based here in Virginia Beach. And so as a result, she had to switch things up. And her and her her primary co-producer on this album was Switch. Diplo, I think, has a handful of tracks as well. But they basically, instead of coming to the U.S. to record the album, they just started traveling the world and going to these different cities and bringing their you know mobile production equipment with them. And that's a lot of how Kala was produced. And you can I feel like you can really hear that global sense of it going from city to city. Yeah, I have to say it's one of the few times that, you know, Homeland Security really, really like they're, Did you a know, favor for yes, us as musical really, listeners. It turns out <laughs> <laughs> their denial of let, not letting a great artist in worked in our favor. So, yeah, I never thought I would say thank you to Homeland Security, uh, but God, thanks. <laughs> because if you listen to the one Timbaland track on Kala, it is the weakest track on there. And I often find myself just skipping it. It's not like the worst Timbaland beat I've ever heard. It's also not the most memorable, but, and and I don't mean to to pick on Tim Mosley because God knows that guy's a genius in a lot of ways, but his guest verse on here is, is terrible. It's garbage. Hey, hey, baby girl, you and me need to go to your TP. The moon is full and I'm shining, baby. I know you see me. Pull the hump two on your back just like that. Ooh, girl, you on fire. I don't want to be in love with you. I'm going to just break you. Baby girl. <laughs> I mean, but, but, but it's the teepee part. Like, she's South Asian, but she's not that kind of Indian. You know what I mean? Like, Tim, like, what were you thinking at that time? At least Jay-Z had the presence of mind to make the joke about red dot versus feather. Like, he understood that there are two different kinds of Indians, but, like, it's just, it's so bad. It's really bad. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, the idea that it, the denial of getting into this country and working with him pushed her out to record all over the world. And you hear it all over the album and just in the percussion and the drumming uh, and even some of the field sounds, you know, from jungles, birds, um, the sound of children's voices. Yes, all of it. And you really hear it mixed in there in a way that, right, we would have not had that. And also, your point about Public Enemy, that I do see that that's a really good um, comparison because I think with Kala, you also hear 
so many more layers of sound, which was the same with Public Enemy. Right, you started right. hearing Bomb really squad, that really exactly that density of sound. exactly yeah. the density and. Inside of that, you can listen to Kala over and over and over again, and you hear something new, something new, something new, another layer, another layer, another layer. And it happens also with her lyrics, because you can flip them around much in the way when Jay-Z, you listen to Jay-Z, it can mean like three different things, the wordplay bouncing off each other. Right. Similar in that way, um, but also very much her own, because her experience is so unique, and you didn't hear artists out there with her kind of life experience, with her kind of immigrant background, with her kind of understanding of the plight of refugees, mm-hmm. of what it means to have to move to another country, learn the language, all of that. You just didn't hear it out there. The moment in which this album drops, right? So we're talking about kind of mid-late uh, first decade of 2000, post 9-11, post-Iraq War or Gulf War Part Two, And, I, th- you know, that's certainly all of that in the background. I mean, the fact that she was denied a visa by Homeland Security, that probably would not have happened if this album had been recorded 10 years earlier. And so I'm wondering, when you were engaging with it, how much of that, the larger social historical backdrop, was also informing your ears in a way? Hugely. This album spoke to me in the way that nothing else did because of what I had been through with my family. I'm half Iraqi, and my family on that side had all been in Baghdad up until... 2003 and the invasion and the war there. And at the point that that album came out, many of them had scattered and they were refugees. Mm. Uh, They were either in uh, Jordan and also in Syria, which Mm. that's a whole other continuing story. And I set out to reconnect with them because I had lost them during the Saddam era. We didn't have a lot of conversation back and forth. My father had passed away and he was the one linked to them. Mm. So I was kind of reconnecting with them at this point, and that was the soundtrack to that journey. I have to tell you, I mean, it spoke to me in a way that nothing else did because there was so much pain in there, but there was also so much anger, Mm. and that's what I was feeling. And when she was talking about one track she did, she had percussion on there, and she said it would sound like what it would be like when the people were fleeing in a boat, refugees, and if they were banging on the side of the boat. And I just thought, Ooh. oh, my God, who else is doing that? My family didn't have to escape in a boat, but fuck, you know, yeah. who else was doing that? So it spoke in a way that nothing else did. And it was genuine. It wasn't looking at it from the outside. And I remember reading a review from somebody in Pitchfork that was like, well, her muddled politics, you know, get in the way of things. And I thought, you know what? No, they don't. Her muddled politics are something you don't understand because you don't see what's going on there yet. And now those quote-unquote muddle politics are what is essentially like rocking everybody's world. Right now, it Mm -hmm. has changed the globe. Mm -hmm. She was way in the forefront of at least trying to get that out there through art. And at the time, all the other offerings out there, you know, what was it? It was, you know, Nelly Furtado. (laughs) It was Fergie, uh, you know, Taylor Swift. You know, not too, too harsh on them. They were doing whatever they were doing, but... But they were not speaking to this. They were not speaking to the moment in any way. There was nothing even about war on there, nothing. And I'm not saying it's got to be raise your fist in the air and, you know, march forward with a flag, but it's something to show that you actually live on the same planet that, you know, all of the rest of us are living on. Lorraine, is there a song on this that you think really captures some of the essence of what you're talking about? The beginning of $20, she just kind of does this wail. Oh, 
just that one guttural wail spoke to the moment so much. Gunshots. There's gunshots in there. And I, I don't think I picked up on the auto-tuning of it either. So it has that disembodied effect that auto-tune tends to do as well. And so, again, as you were saying earlier, there's, there's a lot of layers to the kind of sonic textures on this. We mentioned a little bit earlier about some of the production controversy. or not even That's not even the right way to put it. It was just the ways in which when Hourlar blew up, there was this kind of backlash towards MIA by saying, yeah, she's cool, but really we're giving her too much credit. And really it's Diplo who's basically creating this whole soundtrack. And it's really him who should be given full credit for creating this particular distinctive sound. It was almost so predictable, wasn't it? That, you know, well, clearly it would the same thing happen with you know, Courtney Love, when she did, you know, live through this. Mm-hmm. Well, clearly Kurt did the whole thing. And yeah, well, clearly, she, you know, mm-hmm. MAI was hooked up with Diplo. So clearly he did the whole thing. He's not only just white male, he's American, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, she's got all these counts against her culturally in terms of, you know, people giving credit. Mm-hmm. She's brown. She's a woman. Uh, so, of course, she's not going to get that credit. And I'd like to say a lot of the backlash was driven, you know, by that kind of pitchforky male critics. I hate to say this, but it, it just is. I mean, I grew, I came up in the world yeah. of rock critics, right, of right. hip hop, you know, writers, whatever it is, whatever you want to say. And there was probably about like 98% men, 2% women, women of color, like none, <laughs> you know, barely. So, you know, the narrative that was going out there about what an album was, how the artists had changed, was very much driven by, you know, the kind of guys that look like Diplo. So when she came out with Kala, it was just, it was like a victory dance in a way. It was like, right? You thought that was him? Oh, well, listen to this, motherfuckers. Like, this is what it is. Right. Boom. And there was no disputing or no denying. And as a matter of fact, what Kala did was take what had happened on Arbor and make it much more meaningful, um, deeper, more eccentric. It should have been something that didn't hit on as big a level as it did. And in fact, it went wider. So, and they, at that point, they take diverging paths, right? Diplo does his, whatever you want to call it, global dance party. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's pretty much devoid of any, like, Deep meaning. It's fun. Yeah. Right? Um, But, you know, you look at some of his album covers or you look at some of the things he does on stage, it's totally exploiting those cultures. It's cultural appropriation. He's got all these, like, black women dancing around in thongs. It's like, oh, really? So, like, you just, you know, landed in Havana and you're going to, like, pick a prostitute? I don't know. I mean, that's what it looks like to me. It looks like (laughs) those dudes who go, you know, to countries where... I'm not going to get into that. But it's just, it's really ugly to me it's really ugly where that went and at that point for people to say he was all of it she was just sort of the icing on the cake it was like oh no Mm-mm. Kala just wiped that slate clean Terrier. I'm better off in North Korea. Yeah, from a of a carrier. Cause I got to be more. It's home to get more. Shut the door and everything. Just let my head blow. 
I remember reading criticism about her particular, and this is largely coming from the radical left of critics of color, especially those who are, you know, focusing or have some training in like subaltern studies, basically accusing her of kind of appropriating all of these different subaltern sounds and communities and politics in a way that wasn't necessarily representative of the stuff that she specifically lived through or could represent. It's really interesting because some of the hip hop artists that got huge, what do you want to say, Tupac, Biggie, whoever it is, are you going to mine their stuff to see like, was that really authentic? Going back to like the dirt's big now, Motley Crue, were they really fucking 20 women in the closet? You know, but no, let's celebrate it. So why with MIA is it that we go back and go, how authentic is that? I mean, (laughs) if there's anybody out there that could at least speak to the experience of growing up um, looked at as the enemy Mm -hmm. in one culture, which we're talking about the Tamil, you know, things Sri Lankan. Right. And also looked at as the terrorist. I mean, if there's somebody that can speak to that in music, she can. Right. Right. And I don't think she was ever saying, look, here I am. I am the PLO. I am, you know, this. I am the African refugee. She was at least touching on it and, and bringing those elements in it. I don't know. I don't know that we that we put other artists under scrutiny that did that, that were men of color. And I also think there's an issue in music where we look at, in America particularly, where we look at like race and color in black and white, mm, right? Mm. There's like five billion shades in between. And it's important that we're looking at all of it, right? Sure. But I mean, there isn't only one experience. It's like, well, there's a multitude of white experiences and there's one experience of color. No, there's not. And I think sh- what we were talking about just in terms of the layers of the music, the gradations, the depth, I think she also hits that on the level of bringing all these cultural things in. I, you know, I never listened to it thinking wow, she's really like trying to speak for everybody. It was like she was throwing these elements in. Here's my experience. Listen to all this stuff underneath it and hear how it sort of informs it all. Well, we will be back with more of our conversation about Kala, the album by M.I.A., with our guest Lorraine Ali, after a brief word from some of our sibling Max Fun podcasts. Keep it locked. Macho man to the top rope. The flying elbow. The cover. We've got a new champion! We're here with Macho Man Randy Savage after his big win to become the new world champion. What are you going to do now, Match? I'm going to go listen to the newest episode of the Tights and Fights podcast. Oh, yeah. Tell us more about this podcast. It's the podcast of power. Too sweet to be sour. Funky like a monkey. Woke discussions, man. And jokes about wrestlers' fashion choices. Myself excluded. Yeah. I can't wait to listen. Neither can I. You can find it Thursdays on Maximum Fun. Oh, yeah. Dig it. Hey, if you like your podcast to be focused and well-researched and your podcast host to be uncharismatic, unhorny strangers who have no interest in horses, then this is not the podcast for you. Again, what's your deal? (laughs) I'm Emily. I'm Lisa. Our show's called Baby Geniuses. And its hosts are horny adult idiots. 
We discover weird Wikipedia pages every episode. We discuss institutional misogyny. We ask each other the dumbest questions, and our listeners won't stop sending us pictures of their butts. We haven't asked them to stop, but they also aren't stopping. Join us on Baby Geniuses every other week on MaximumFun.org. And we are back here on Heat Rocks talking with Lorraine Ali about Kala, the sophomore album from 2007 by M.I.A. Lorraine, before we get back to the album, I wanted to ask you something about your relationship to music as a writer, yeah, because you are now, I think, you know, officially a television critic. And I don't know when the last time you were more or less writing about music full time, but I'm assuming it's been a, a minute. Do you miss it at all? I do. I do miss it. I think about this often because when I'm writing television pieces, I feel like I'm using a different part of my brain. Mm. With music, when you write about it or when you think about it or when you listen to it, you are giving it the narrative. I mean, I'm in, when I listen to music, I'm kind of not interested what the artist's idea of the story is in the, in the music, in the film. See, I just yeah, did see, it. There you go. Uh, but you know, you are adding the narrative to it. And I think it hits on a much more like guttural emotional level and it seeps in that way and it becomes really personal. But it's also a collective experience, right? Many other people are listening to it. So in that way, it's hyper personal, mm -hmm. but it's also something that we can discuss on a collective level. Television, and I think more so it's, got, it's gotten more personal because it's gotten a lot better, but I don't think it hit those same chords for me, at least back in the day when I was writing about music. I mean, part of why I'm curious about this is I have not written about music full time in, I mean, since my daughter was born. That's been, it's been 14 years. I still write about music occasionally, but it's few and far between. And in a lot of ways, doing this show scratches the itch that I have to talk about music, which is different than having to sit down and pen like 400 or 800 words about a new album. And I, I have so much respect to my colleagues out there who, that's what they're still doing and they're grinding doing it. I'm so happy that I don't have to do it. And I think part of it is I like talking about music in the way that you and I are talking about it. I don't like having to form some kind of critical opinion about something outside of just saying, I really like this or I didn't like it, but I don't want to have to explain my, <laughs> my likes and dislikes yeah. to anybody else. So yeah. I'm always curious talking to people who used to write about music, but don't anymore. Yeah. What it has, is your relationship to music similar or different now that you're not writing about it in a professional way? Yes. I think, you know, and, and to the point, it sounds ridiculous because I was a music critic for most of my career. I really hated deconstructing it. I almost didn't want to do it because I wanted to keep it the thing that I loved. Yeah. I wanted to keep it the thing that just came into me and moved me, right? And then, you know, after a while, I started to think, like, I don't want it to be a job listening to music, which sounds also ridiculous, but you get to that point. And yeah, my relationship is different. I can listen. Like, I was excited about coming on the show when I was driving down here, I was listening to the album in the car and I was listening to it in a different way now than I would have if I had to sit down and review it. Yeah. And I almost, many of the albums in the beginning, you know, when I would sit down and review them, I'd review them, I'd do it. But then I would go back and listen to them as what I would call a human, <laughs> a civilian. Yeah. A civilian, <laughs> I like that. And I would, uh, you know, I was able to forge my own relationship with the album outside of what I just gave everybody else because I want some of that stuff to be my own as well. Right. Right. Well, along those lines, and bring this back to MIA, and I don't know to what extent you've thought about this, but it seems to me that 
pun intended here, that MIA is largely MIA from the current pop scene in a way that's surprising only because you would think that her politics or the the ways in which we interpret her politics, at least, would be so much as resonant now, if not more so than it was, you know, 15 years ago when she first started, given like post-Trump, given post-Brexit, you know, all of these things in which the kind of backlash around globalization, she could really, you know, refugee crisis is everywhere, including here, you know, at home, that a voice like hers would be able to speak to that. And while she's still making music, it's not like she disappeared. Her prominence seems much dimmer than it was um, when those, you know, as opposed to those first two albums. And I don't know if that's her. I don't know if that's the music industry. I don't know if that's me. I'm just wondering if you really thought about kind of the general arc of her career. Well, in terms of the, the just the music industry, you know, she was an outlier then. And I, I don't, I hoped at that moment that, look, this is opening it up. This is, you know, actually starting to expand, mm-hmm. you know, what we're hearing, what what's out there. But that didn't really happen in a, in a big way, in a significant way. The arc of her career, I think, is, it's almost indicative of coming from the margins of, thinking differently of feeling embattled really her whole upbringing she felt embattled her whole upbringing she was the other Mm -hmm. um and she was that in music as well and you can't keep going like that you burn out Mm -hmm. and i could see it i interviewed her after this album came out and she was she was embattled she was burnt out she was tired of people deconstructing her um deconstructing her politics of her catching death threats mm-hmm. for, you know, uh, what people had said that she was a terrorist, things like that. And I could see it on her. It was wearing. And I don't know. Um, I often see that artists who are like really highly creative, but also angry and combative, they burn out really fast. And I, I feel like that's what happened to her. It's a shame. It's really a shame. But um, her next album was not bad. But it was so off the rails in many ways. It was that dark. It was really it was dark. It was a really dark album. And the funny thing is, is she told me, like, this album's just free. It's free. It's freedom. And th- if this is your freedom going into this darker place, I could mm. see which way you're headed. Mm. Although, I loved Bad Girls. Crazy video, too. Oh, dark my God. Video. The Saudi drifting. Yes. It was amazing. And to hear all the Arabic sort of melodies in that and the video with the Saudi drifters... And it's like, I knew that was going on because, I, you know, yeah. but to see it in a video. Right. A lot of us it, never, had never, I mean, unless you uh, travel there, you know, we'd never seen that, in, you know, out here in the U.S. Right. So, and yeah. to see these guys also that, you know, all you ever think about of these, in the, of these guys in Galabias is they're, you know, they're just like heading off the Hajj or they're, you know, right. they're holding a gun on a rooftop and shooting at U.S. Right. troops. No, right. they're drifting. They're doing dumb shit in cars, <laughs> just like us. Just like American guys. <laughs> Stupid shit in cars. Right. <laughs> The art that she was doing, the music she was doing, I don't know how she could sustain because the rest of the world hadn't even budged in that direction. As a matter of fact, it felt like it was getting, music industry at least, was even getting more vapid. Yeah. It's like, let's celebrate Lady Gaga. She's really, you know, confrontational and different. It's like, that's what we were worshiping. And how do you, how do you keep going with that intact and right. not just either buy into it or totally burn out? Well, I will say this much, is this album still sounds as resonant today as it did 
you know, 12 years ago when it, when it came out. And, and partly I think that the music itself has aged really well, but as I was also alluding to, I think listening to it in this current moment, it still feels like it speaks sadly, actually, you know, in, in tragic ways, but it speaks very well to sort of what's happening in the world. It's so, uh, it's in fact now more resonant about what is going on, exactly what you just said, mm-hmm. um, than it was even then. And I, I, it makes me sad that there isn't something else out there from her right now that's yeah. new. But then, you know, maybe this is the album that just came out too early and it's speaking to the time. I don't know. But yeah, but like who else can we turn to right now musically without having to dig super duper duper deep that would speak to this moment? Who else? Right. I mean, we're all waiting for Beyonce or Kendrick Lamar, but there's a whole world of other artists who probably are doing it. They just don't happen to have the same. Yeah. And Beyonce and Kendrick Lamar can't do it all. Come on, folks. Snap it up out there. (laughs) Stop laying everything on their shoulders. (laughs) All right. Well, let's get back into the specifics of Kala. If you had to choose a fire track off of here, what would it be? I'm going to say boys. Great. it's so good it's just i will blast that in my car now still if i'm going to a a situation where i know there's going to be conflict like say perhaps at work you know not that that happens at the la times just saying that is my fight song i just blast that thing and it's like okay i can do anything now i can do anything now It's a fight song. It's yeah. a revolutionary song, yeah, yeah. but it's also fun. It's super fun. Yeah, you can dance to it. It's fun, but it's also pissed off, and it's also it's super powerful. And um, it's called Boys, and and she's singing it. Yeah, <laughs> Boys, I think ranks really high for me as well. Uh, but in re-listening to this album, the the song that jumped out to me again, as it did the, when I first listened to it all those years ago. Uh, so my fire track would be World Town. And I think a lot of it is just on a sonic level. This is, and this whole album is just bombastic, but this one is the first amongst equals in that sense. And Especially just the, you know, that kind of like squeegee synth that, that's in there, the use of the gunshots. There's a lot of gunshots in this album. They're using the gunshot as a percussive device. There's just so many, we keep using the word layers because I don't, I don't know of a better uh, term to use here, but I just love that just cacophony that comes at you on this. Again, it's not the only song on the album that you could pick, but it's the one to me that just keeps slapping me upside the head every time yeah. I listen to it. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. It um, sort of goes to war on the dance floor. It really mm. is the gunshots and the, but then the beat. And I also love that she weaves in 
these things like I listen to a lot of Bollywood tracks at home. My husband's Indian, so it's like, and we listen to a lot of classic Bollywood. And I also listen to, you know, a lot of like the old Arab hits. I don't know what you would call them, you know, because I was so disgusted with my dad when he played them in the car when I was young. I was just like, oh, God, turn that down. My friends are outside. You know? <laughs> right. And now I can hear it, was it in deeply here. Uncool at the time. It was so uncool. Yeah. And now I can hear it in here with the pop stuff I grew up with, with the hip hop, with all of that. No, it's fun that you bring this up because I was thinking about what the sleeper jam on here was for me. And one of the songs that I think I kind of fast forwarded through, you know, back in 07 was probably Jimmy, partly because Jimmy didn't really, to me, sound like boys. It didn't sound like World Town or Paper Planes. But listening to it now, I'm like, you know, it's actually pretty cool that M.I.A. tried to pull off a 1980s Bollywood style disco jam. The great part about that is that all those Bollywood movies were fashioned around, you know, American films, right? I right. mean, they were echoing, the early ones were echoing the Elvis films, you know, or echoing some of the, even A Star is Born at one point. This is, you know, the Saturday Night Fever. And Absolutely. the fact that she's pulling it back and doing it the other way, it's so great. It's like been recycled three or four times by the time it gets to her. And it's, it's just great. It's yeah. such a wonderful way to sort of rethink it. Is there a sleeper jam on here for you? A song that maybe the first time you listened to this was like you weren't as into, but as time has gone by, you actually find yourself gravitating towards more and more. Oddly enough, it's Paper Planes. Okay. And that was the one that, right? That of was course, the, the that hit, was the mega right? smash, yeah. Right. And I, you know, when I had heard it in the um, Pineapple Express trailer, trailer. I, you know, I thought it was good, but it didn't hit me in a way that a lot of these other tracks did. And then when I was alone with it, then I sort of, I, I think I rejected it in a way because it was like it came to me through a movie trailer and I was yeah. like, meh. Right. When I heard it on my own, it sunk in in a way of like, wow, the cash register, again, the gunshots, but also such a lovely melody. It's like, oh, we're vacationing in this tropical paradise, but underneath that vacation res- resort that you're in, there's like cash for guns and there's a, there's a fucking war outside of the resort. <laughs> and that's right. what it sounded like to me, like, Wow. She captured all of that in one song. I love that you picked Paper Planes because, number one, regardless of the fact that it was the big hit, and, and as, as music folks maybe we want to be the cool kids and not go with the obvious choice it's like oh that's but this so song, obvious this song's really good <laughs> it's so good it's so good and to your point like that chorus with the gunshots with the cash register um you know we ask our guests about what their favorite moment on an album is and to me this is at least my honorary mention like just the chorus on paper planes i think is fantastic and just the song as a whole i think it's a really interesting example too of how a really good sample choice does a lot of really heavy lifting. And I think this is not to take anything away from uh, Diplo and Switch, who, who uh, both who helped produce the song, but you got to give it up to The Clash and Straight to Hell because if you have never heard the original source material, it's like they didn't have to do a ton to make this sound great.
I mean, that, the four on the floor kick drum is there. Obviously, that repetitive guitar riff. I mean, all all love to the Clash on this one, and then you know they took that and then flipped it into Paper Planes. Always and, love to the Clash, though. Yeah. Always. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did say that Paper Planes was my honorary mention for favorite moment because, again, I, I do love the chorus on there. But I think the the moment on the album that really jumped out to me, uh, again, when I listened to it, especially the first time, but it's it still does the trick for me now, is on Hustle, and it's when African Boy cuts in around the one twenty mark. Where you don't, if you and if you've never heard the song before, you wouldn't anticipate it. The song shifts; it goes a cappella, and then you just get that grind, crazy synth chord that kicks in. You think it's tough now? Come to Africa. You think out there we are grinding like Pepe. You can catch me on the motorway, selling sugar, water, and Pepe. Africa, not Miami. I I just, oh my God, I love everything. Well, that's the thing that MIA does so well too. It's like, don't get too comfortable here and don't like get to take this too lightly because (laughs) I'm going to rip this through and you are going to wake, am I allowed to cuss? Yeah. And you're going to wake the fuck up. Like it was just like, (laughs) no, I know this is like easy breezy for you, but it's not going to be because it's not easy breezy for him and just like ripping. Right. Not to put you on the spot here, but do you have a favorite moment on this album? You said many, but yeah. I have so many favorite um, moments on this album. I think one of the songs that I went back to and listened to was Bamboo Banga. Yeah, the lead. Yeah, and I feel like that whole song is one great moment. There's this amazing percussion, and I think these were um, Indian percussionists. I can't remember Maybe exactly. Maybe players. Yeah, something, something like that, yeah. right, because she was supposed to work with A.R. Rahman on this album, mm, mm, and I mm. think this was coming off of um, Slumdog. That didn't happen, but he had, in fact, turned her on to all these percussionists, and that's what we're hearing here. And then it goes into this sort of EDM, but the whole thing is, to me, is one crazy moment (laughs) I don't know I, I almost don't think of it as a song it's also the beginning of that song reminds me of Going to the Indian weddings with my, it reminds me of my own wedding with my husband. I mean, at the you know at the um, three day long reception, yeah. <laughs> the drummers come in and everybody just gets down on the floor. And he's Caribbean Indian, so it's mixed wow. with all that stuff. So I hear a lot of that in here too. Where I didn't hear that anywhere else, unless I would actively look for it in you know dancehall stuff or whatever it was chutney. Right. But it's in here. Yeah. You know, and for a song to start with that, it's like oh. She knows. She's talking to me. (laughs) (laughs) 
cruel question to ask of a writer. Oh, no. You're going to be cruel. Yes. You already made me cut this down to one song. Come on. If you had to describe Kala in three words, what three words would you choose? Fierce, revolutionary, and fun. You know, that is actually pretty fast. Most of our writers take the longest because they're <laughs> always just kind of, you know, meticulously going over their word choices. But no, you, you got that out. You know what? Quite Can I nice. just say when I interviewed her, I just wanted to say I brought this quote because I had to look it up again. Um, but she said about the album, I just don't want to go on and on about coming from a war and guns and bombs and blah, 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 blah. I wanted to talk about economy and education and how the first world is collapsing into the third world, you know, how everything's changing. I love like the her saying, I wanted to talk about the first world collapsing into the third world when I interviewed her. I just thought, that's it. That is what I'm hearing right, right there. Right. And we are certainly still living through that. We are. Yeah. We are. Although, you know, it seems if you listen to music, that's totally stopped. Everything's really fun right now. <laughs> Maybe Pick do- up a Taylor Swift album. It's really good right now. What are we complaining about? We just need the escapism, perhaps. We do. It would be nice, though, if we could deal with some of the other side of it. That's what Handmaid's Tale is for. There you go. <laughs> if you liked Kala, we wanted to give you some recommendations. And since Morgan's not here, I asked Lorraine to step in with hers. I'll start, though. And the album that actually came to mind is uh, a far older album, one from 1976, which is Diga by the Diga Rhythm Band, which was a collaboration between Mickey Hart, who was the drummer for the Grateful Dead, and master tabla percussionist Zakir Hussein. Uh, The Diga album from memory is, I think, a purely instrumental album, so it doesn't have the same kind of thematic politics of MIA. But sonically, I thought its exploration of different rhythms and textures reminded me a lot of what I thought really worked with what MIA and Switch were playing with uh, on Kala. Lorraine, what would you recommend people check out? You know, it can't be one thing because MIA mixes it all together. True. So I'm just going to squish this all together. I'm going to say anything by Muhammad Rafi, um, just beautiful Bollywood singer, God rest his soul. Uh, and then, you know, um, in Monsoon Wedding soundtrack, beautiful. Okay. And then Dance Hall, Cuddy Ranks, um, some of the older Sean Paul stuff. Uh, what else can I throw in there? And um, so what people should do is load up those songs in GarageBand and multi-track it, and then yes. hit play and see what happens. And yes, and go. then drop the slits in there, and then you're done. You're done. You got it. I love you. On that note, that will do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, Lorraine Ali. What are you working on right now? Well, I'm working on something that's so similar to um, MIA at Stranger Things. <laughs> Watching it, writing about it, um, you know, why it appeals so much. It's like one of the few things that parents can watch with their kids. That's super fucking boring. 
Where can people follow you online or find your stuff? You can find my writing for LA Times on latimes.com, uh, Twitter at Lorraine Ollie, and um, that's that's about it. Thanks so much for coming through. This is so much fun. Yeah, it is fun. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself and Morgan, alongside Christian Duenas, who also edits, engineers, and does the booking for our shows. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and our executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Maximum Fun family, taping every week live in their studios in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hey, this is producer Christian just jumping in here with a quick tease for next week's episode. It's another solo episode. This time, Morgan Rhodes is talking to soul legend, the one and only Lee Fields, about Sam Cooke's greatest hits compilation, Portrait of a Legend. I think Sam sang about the when and the then and the beginning of gospel, and then he sang about the way people actually felt. And I think... You know, it's up to different opinions. Nobody knows but God. Right. But I truly believe that um, the stuff that he sang that weren't gospel were giving people a positive feeling about uh, themselves because he sang about how people love each other, you know, like uh, Frank and Johnny. Right. He sang about reality. So people did those things and are still doing those things, still hurting each other. I could play it in front of my child without having to close the door. Sure. Because he said it in a fashion where uh, we know as adults what he was talking about. But children that were underage, you could play it for them. They wouldn't even know. If we followed follow Sam's pattern and his way of doing things, We'll be a lot more, uh, show a lot more courtesy, and I think we'll be a lot more love in the world today. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.